This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Have you ever had a task or been given instructions uh, that you were like, okay, that's not possible without an outside help? Like that is not, it's just not, not doable. Have you ever moved some of those big white tables that are out there? Like we move them each week. If you haven't, uh, there's plenty of opportunity before and after service um, to help move those white tables, but they are deceivingly heavy. Um, and so like I used to, the, whoever invented those plastic white tables, brilliant. Those, those are the way to go. But those big white tables, like you just can't move it by yourself. Uh, there, there's no way you're either going to break yourself or the table or the doors or something, right? Because they're big and bulky and heavy. You've got. But if someone else comes in to help you, then then it's doable, right? If you have if you have some help, then it's okay. Now we can move the table. Um, maybe if you're if you remember your math days in school, uh, Michaela's taking algebra. She hates it. She just scowled at me that I mentioned it. Um, you know, you remember your math days, algebra, and then calculus and stuff, and the teacher's like, hey, find the intersecting points of these two formulas. And you're like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, there's letters, and I don't even, but then you pull out your TI-83, you know? You can do anything with that calculator, right? Like, I can, I can run the world with that calculator. So, I mean, there's just, there's all these tasks, these jobs, these relationships, these things that, it's like, okay, on my own, this is not going to go well. I, I need help. I need endurance. I need strength. I need an outside presence. And that's what we see happening in Acts 2, is the, the help is coming, right? Like the, the help is coming for the task that has been given by Jesus. Um, and so if we remember, Acts is part two of a historical writing. Um, so the, the first part one is what we know as the gospel of Luke. Um, Luke is writing the, the gospel to Theophilus, an orderly account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so Luke, the gospel of Luke, focuses on the, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, up to the point when he ascends into heaven. And so we talked last week, like, well, what, what was Jesus focused about? Like, what did he come to, to do and to teach? And, and we see in verse 3, if you have your Bible and you look at Acts 1-3, that, that for the 40 days after his resurrection, he spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus' focus in the time that he was here on earth was to bring God's kingdom to earth and, and to invite all people in all places to be a part. The, the way that just, it's always stuck for me, the way that I think about like Jesus' purpose and why he came was that he came to fix what I broke. Uh, that we were created to be in this perfect relationship and, and world with God. That's what, that's what the very beginning was with Adam and Eve in Eden, was this perfect kingdom, this perfect world with, with God and, and mankind. But then Adam and Eve, and just like all of us, we, selfishness runs deep, and we all thought, hey, God, I appreciate your input, um, but I got this. Like, I can make my own decisions. I know you say don't do this. I know you say do this, but man, that, that looks really appealing and I'm just not sure you understand, like, I'm going to go ahead and do this, right? And, and so that's what the Bible calls sin. Anytime we do what God says don't do, or we don't do what God says to do, that's sin. That, that's walking away from trusting Him, and that separates us from His relationship. It puts an, 
an obstacle in between, right? So I've used this before. Like if I sin against Brandon, there's an obstacle in our relationship until that obstacle is removed and we can have reconciliation, right? It's the same thing with sin and God. Our sin puts this dividing wall of hostility in between us and God. Jesus came to tear that wall down, to live the perfect life we are supposed to live, to die on the cross for our sins, and then he rises from the dead so that he can destroy that wall of hostility and unite us into relationship with God today and for all of eternity. That is what Jesus came and began to do and to teach and to invite all people to be a part of that with him. Then we get to the book of Acts, part two, and Acts focuses on what Jesus is continuing to do in the lives of his followers by the power of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 1, he says, right, in Acts 1, verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. This ongoing advance of God's kingdom is to continue to happen through those people who by faith have trusted Jesus. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so Acts begins to tell that story of what Jesus is continuing to do in the lives of his church on this earth to expand his mission. Does that make sense? Luke talks about the life of Jesus and the death and the resurrection. Acts now talks about what happens when his spirit comes and empowers his people to continue that mission on. We're living in the ongoing story of Acts. Acts is continuing today in us. We're carrying on this mission. This command to be his witness is for all of us. We are his ambassadors. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. When we trust Christ, we become a new creation, and the mind-boggling thing to make, God can do whatever he wants, right? He created all things. He can do whatever he wants, and he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to continue the mission of Jesus through us. Like, I know me. I'm thinking, God, there's got to be a better way. Like, I'm not, no, like, you, you eh, I don't know if that's the best idea. Yet that's God's plan, is that you and I are to be the representatives of Jesus, the hands and feet of Jesus. How in the world do we do that? Right, like Jesus I get because he's Jesus, he's God. You know, it's like, of course Jesus did it right, right? If he, if he didn't, then I don't know that he would be God. So I get that, but how am I now, First John 2 says I'm supposed to walk just as Jesus walked, how am I supposed to do that? I'm supposed to love, that's what Jesus says, love just as I have loved you. Like that's, that's a command from Jesus to us. We don't get to be like, hey, hey, Jesus, that's cool for the people that like love me, but for those people that don't love me or I don't really know or just kind of nuisances in my life, I'm supposed to love them just like you loved me. And Jesus is like, yep, you are. That's the command of Jesus. How in the world do we do that? I mean, let's be honest, right? Let's just think about our lives a little bit. Let's just think back to yesterday. Maybe in the week with our, our neighbors or our coworkers, like, man, really? Like, I'm supposed to be his witness to, to the people that sit next to me? Like, how? 
Well, the good news is Jesus also said in, in Acts 1, he, he ordered them to stay in Jerusalem. He says in verse 4, don't depart to Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father you had heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. At the start of verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And John, Jesus said, it is better for me, for you, if I go back to heaven, because then the Holy, I can send the Holy Spirit to come and fill you. Jesus promises that he gives us this command, and he says, not only am I going to give you this command, I'm going to give you what you need to do it. I'm going to give you the help you need. There's this task that Jesus gives us, this huge task to be his witness and his representative, and he gives us that command, and he says, but not only that, I'm going to give you the help you need to do it. I'm going to give you the power you need to do it by the Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit in you. And so that's what Theophilus has read thus far in Acts. He also then reads how Matthias was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. But remember, like he's just, Theophilus just gets this and he's just reading it, right? And so he's reading of this promise of the Holy Spirit that's going to come. And then he gets to Acts chapter 2. And so it says in verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So let's stop there. So Theophilus gets this, this book, just like us, and he's reading it, and he's like, okay, okay, Jesus ascends into heaven after 40 days of, after his resurrection, and now it's the day of Pentecost, according to this history book. Pentecost was the 50th day after the Passover. It was an annual celebration in which they would come and bring the first fruits of their wheat harvest and offer it to God. And so Theophilus knows, okay, if Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover, he's going backwards, and he says, okay, Jesus was betrayed on the Friday of Passover, the week of Passover, so 40 days after that, it's approximately a week or so after Jesus ascended to heaven that we get Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives the final command, ascends to heaven, Acts chapter 2 verse 1, it's the day of Pentecost, there's about a week's time span give or take, in between that, where they were waiting in Jerusalem for this promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I just want to say something about uh, Pentecost. It, it was the annual traditional like, celebration and festival where they gave their first fruits of, of wheat. Their, their first 10% of their harvest, they would take and they would sacrifice to God. They would give back to God. And so you've maybe heard this concept of a tithe, of giving your first 10% um, back to the church, back to really God's church so that the mission can continue. And I think the, the church gets a bad rap, but like, oh, they always talk about money. And, and I don't think we do a lot. Um, and so uh, the, the reality is, though, Jesus talks about it all the time. So it's not like this, like, oh, man, the church is just talking about it. No, Jesus talked about it. The Bible talked about it. And, and God instructs us to give the first fruits of what he has given us. And here's why. Here's why. Because God knows that, that our possessions, the thing in our lives, that so often we, we just so subtly call it mine. Like this is all mine. It's my things. And, and the Bible actually teaches that 100% of it is God's, that we don't have anything that he hasn't given to us. 
but we so quickly hold on to these material possessions and, and elevate them to the place of idolatry where we're holding tightly to things, but really they're holding tightly to us and they start to control us. And so God instructs us to give, not because he, it's not like he's running out of wheat. Like he's gonna be just fine. He created the whole world. He can create wheat if he needs wheat. So God's not like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do if they don't give me their 10% of wheat? The reason he instructs them to give and us to give of our, our resources and our, our finances it is so that we can hold on loosely to those things that oftentimes hold on tightly to us and that we can see his faithfulness to provide even when we let go. G God's not asking from us, he's wanting to give to us. He, he's not asking from us, he, doesn't, he really doesn't need our money. He, he wants to give to us. He wants to show us his faithfulness as we hold on loosely. And so I'm going to say something risky that I'm sure other like, people in the church planning world will be like, you shouldn't say that. But I'm just going to say this. Look, we'll be fine as a church if you choose not to tithe. We're going to be okay. But you know who's not going to be okay? Is you. Because God has commanded you to give and to hold on loosely for your good. So you can see his faithfulness and his provision. So we'll, we'll be fine. It'll, God, God will take care of it. But, but it's for, that's why, that's why this festival has been here since thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. So that's what's happening at Pentecost, is they're all gathered up together um, in the same place when the Holy Spirit is about to come and indwell them. Here's another thought I thought. I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, so they're, they're all, verse 1, all together in one place. Like they're gathered up for their, their worship service, their Pentecost, their, their worship. What if, what if we were the first 120? Acts 1 says about 120. What if, what if, let's just say it's us, right? We're now here in Acts chapter 1. We're the first Christians. What if we were like, ah, I think I'm going to skip today. I can think I'm going to skip this. I, I don't really feel like going I'm going to skip this Pentecost worship service. Ah, oh, something, I got something else coming up. I, I've, got, I've got a lot I've got to do. Um, like, could you just imagine if, like, you skipped that, that worship service? If, if, if verse 1 read, like, most of them were together in one place because some wanted to sleep in or some, like, had other things to do. Um, I, I'm not trying to guilt anybody here. I'm just saying I... God doesn't always tell us what he's going to do. He doesn't have to say, like, he never told them, hey, on this Pentecost, that's when I'm going to send my spirit. Th they were there for Pentecost because that's what God had commanded them to do, and they were being faithful to his commands, and that's when the spirit came upon them. I just wonder how many incredible things of God we miss because we realize, I just don't know that I want to go. I, it's pure speculation. I get it. But it says they were all there in one place. Can you imagine if you skipped out and it was like, what in the, I don't think Jesus is going to hold the Spirit back, but I think we're going to miss something pretty incredible. It, it's, just, it's just a thought I had. We, we've got to show up, we've got to be present if we're going to see God move. So they're all here gathered in one place. The Feast of Pentecost, the, the Festival of Pentecost, and suddenly something tangible happens. Two things, a mighty sound, like a vicious sound, like rushing wind, fills the entire house. 
and divided tongues like fire come and rest upon them. Luke, Luke tells us that these tangible events happen. This is a historical book. It's not allegory or poetry or metaphor. Luke is describing a tangible event that happens. You're going to hear me say that over and over again because I think so often when we think about the Holy Spirit, we just think of this like idea or this feeling or this like theoretical, I don't know, place that, of Zen place that we go to, and yet Luke is describing something real and tangible and experiential in their lives. We see first that this mighty, ferocious wind, or sound like a wind, it's not a literal wind, but it's a sound like a wind. Over in, I think it's verse 6. Yeah, verse 6, we see that this sound caused people outside of the house to come and see what happened. It was so loud that people outside came to see what happened. I mean, I, I kind of think of like a, an airplane jet, like a, a, the engine, where you may not feel it, but you're like, that is loud. Stop it. It's just this incredibly loud sound that, that is concentrated in one house, that fills the entire house, wall to wall, ceiling to floor. It's just completely filling the house. And then Luke sees divided tongues as a fire, not literal fire. Again, Luke is trying to, these are new things, and so he's trying to put words to these things that he's seeing. He's like, I don't really know how to describe this. I've never seen this before, but there's this incredible sound that we hear and this sight of, of tongues like fire, not divided like split in half, but divided among all the people. He sees these tongues resting over them. And, and and here's what I think God is wanting to, to see us or to teach us, and it comes throughout the Bible, is that wind is symbolic of power, and it's something that is heard. So this, this first manifestation is, is symbolic of power. It's just filling the entire room. It's moving outside of the walls. People around the house are, are hearing it, and they're, they're caught on, they're curious by it. It's this powerful sound that they hear. And then the tongues of fire is symbolic of presence. It was something that was seen. So you've got this sound that is heard and is symbolic of God's power, and you've got these tongues of fire that is seen and is symbolic of His presence. And this is what I think that God is trying to communicate, is that the Spirit is coming to continue what Jesus began, which is a kingdom of God that we see and that we hear. The kingdom of God is something that we see in the life of Jesus. He demonstrates God's kingdom in his selfless love. And the kingdom of God is something that we hear when he proclaims the gospel that says your sins can be forgiven by my death and life can be given new by my resurrection. And so the kingdom of God in our lives should be seen and should be heard. It's both. The power of the Spirit in us should move us both to live outwardly different and to speak different. We see this combination in Luke and Acts over and over and over and over and over again. This phrase of see and heard. I have to speak of what I've seen and what I've heard. And so we, we see that the Spirit has, has come in a tangible, experiential way. And that our lives should literally be different. 
that we should live like Jesus, that we should speak like Jesus, that the spirit of Jesus in us should change our lives, that we have to look at our lives and say, if my life isn't increasingly looking like Jesus, then something's off. If what I'm saying isn't increasingly sounding like Jesus, then it's not something, something is off. And so it says here that everyone there in verse 4 was filled with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit completely filled every person so that they could proclaim with their mouths and with their lives the kingdom of God to the world around them. They could live out his witness by the Spirit of God in them. So this is monumental. This changes everything. Up to this point, the Spirit of God had not come and filled people and dwelled in them. The Spirit would come and give people power for a time, but it wouldn't stay and reside. The Spirit wouldn't make his home in a person. But now in Acts 2, that's changing. That's why the Bible says we become his temple, because he dwells in us. That's why 1 Corinthians 6 says our body is not our own. We're to honor God with our lives because he lives in us. We are his temple. So what is the role of the Spirit? I mean, we could, I'm just going to say a couple things because we could do a whole, I don't know, semester-long study on the role of the Spirit. But we see in the Bible that it's the Spirit of God in us that enables us to actively experience the power and presence of God. Look, I've been, I've been saying at the start of this year that God's just stirring something in me, that there is so much more of him to have and to know and experience than we've even scratched the surface of. Like, as, as much as our minds can dream and fathom, God's like, that is just the start. And it's the spirit of God in us that enables us to tangibly experience him to hear him, to talk with him, to know him. It's the Spirit of God in us that gives us new life. Without the Holy Spirit, the Bible says we're dead. We're spiritually dead. But by faith in Christ, the Spirit indwells us and we're made alive. We're given a new heart. It's the Spirit of God in us who convicts us of sin and moves us to walk in truth. The Spirit is always doing that. If we, if, we, if we have sin that we're holding on to and there's no conviction, we've got to ask if the Spirit of God is actually in us then because the Spirit convicts us of sin and moves us into truth. The Spirit of God empowers us to walk as Jesus walked. The same Spirit of Jesus that enabled Jesus to do what he did is in us. Like, we have his power. The Spirit of God gifts us with unique spiritual gifts to build up the church and to be his witnesses. So what is, maybe you've heard this talked about, this idea of being baptized in the Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? So Jesus said over in, in verse uh, in verse 5, right, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Ephesians 5, Paul says, um, let me get to it real fast. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, 
do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled. It's an ongoing, continually be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16, Paul also says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so you, you see these multiple things, right, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to baptize you with the Spirit. And then Paul is telling us to continually be filled by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. So what, what do those mean? How do we know what's happened? What's happening to us today? What, what does all that look like? So Acts 2 is what we see when people are being baptized by the Spirit. The word baptism often is associated with water. It means to, to dip or to fully immerse or submerge someone. So that's why for us, we believe the, the best way for baptism is complete immersion and sum, submersion in the water. Because you're, it's, it's a picture of being completely covered and wrapped. There's no part of you un, untouched by this water. And so baptism of the Spirit is a complete fill that the, the Spirit of God fills someone to the brim and to overflowing. And so that's why it's important even that it said in verse 2 that the sound filled the entire house where they were sitting. There was no area left untouched by the, the presence and power of the Spirit. And so Ephesians 1 says that we are sealed by the Spirit when we become a Christian, that His Spirit comes and fills us. So I, I feel very much, I'm going I'm to try something that we don't, I don't get to do this at home because none of this stuff is at home. So I tried it a little bit. And so if it goes south, my apologies, but I think it'll be okay. So when, before we're a Christian, um, we're empty. We don't have the Spirit of God in us. Um, we're, we're dead in our sins. Um, we're just a, a human vessel that is void of the Spirit of God. But when we trust Christ, oh man, this is, oh, it's a little heavier than I thought. When we trust Christ, the Bible teaches this, well, that's going to take too long. And it's an instantaneous filling. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to give that picture. Come on. Trust Christ. Just trust Christ with this, right? So when we trust Christ, the Bible teaches, as we see in Acts 2 and Ephesians 1, that we are baptized with the Spirit. We're completely filled by the Spirit of God. All right? To the point even that we're overflowing to the world around us. So, so oh, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's wrap it up. That's a, that's a day. <laughs> so that's what you see happening in Acts 2. With all of these 120 that are present on Pentecost, that didn't sleep in and didn't skip, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them completely with his power and his presence. When we become a Christian, that's what happens. Our empty soul is filled completely. To, to become a Christian, Jesus says, you have to die to yourself. So the Spirit of God can't fill me if I come to him while also trying to leave part of it for my own self. I can't come to God and say, hey, I want you to fill me, but just like 80%, because this other 20%, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it for myself and do my own thing. That's, that's not how Jesus tells us we come to him. We come to him empty. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. That doesn't mean even in that moment we fully understand it. That just means, hey, Jesus, I'm completely yours. And, and today, as much as I know, I, I, I turn away from my sin, and I, I'm all yours. And then a week from now, when you open my eyes to go, oh, my gosh. Like, 
it's a sin to get drunk, then I'm going to lay that down and say, Jesus, your way is right. And I'm going to put that away. And then, so, that, so then we come, that's what it means to come empty so that he can fill us fully. That's baptism of the Spirit, but then remaining full is something that Paul tells us, to continually be filled by the Spirit. And so what, what does that look like? So <laughs> I'm going to refill, I'm going to refill this because the Spirit never runs empty. So we're just going to make sure that we have enough, right? So the Spirit of God is always meant to be filling us to the point where we're overflowing to the world around us, right? But Ephesians chapter 4, it says right in the middle of, of Paul telling us how to live as Christians, he says, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. And so there's this concept that the Bible gives us is that as Christians with the Spirit in us, it's possible for us to grieve and to quench, to stop the Spirit of God's filling in our lives. We're meant to stay in the way of Jesus, in his path, walk as he walked. But see, the problem is when we take sin, when we take our own way, and we put it in our lives, we start to obstruct the power of the Spirit in us, and we simultaneously move outside of his will. And so the Spirit's still there, but as we add sin into our lives, we're pressing the Spirit of God out of our lives. We're no longer being filled by his presence, and we're adding in sin that doesn't allow room for the Spirit of God to fill us. The great news of the, of the Bible, though, is at any point, we can repent from our sin, confess it, turn away from it, and that moves us back into right step with the Spirit of God, and he fills us back up. So we're always meant to be in the Spirit, and it's our own doing, our presence of sin, our presence of, of doing our own things that obstructs that and removes his power and his presence. And the longer and the more that we add in, the longer we let it sit, the more that this grows and expands and takes over our lives to where at some point, I'm sure we've all been there, we look up one day and we go, what has happened? How did I get here? Where's the power of God in my life? Why can't I hear him? Why can't I feel his presence? And it's not that the spirit has ever left us. It's that we have put in things that quench and grieve the spirit of God in our lives so that we are the obstacle. We are bringing in the problem that keeps his spirit from continually filling us so that we can know his power and his presence. That was far less messy than I expected. And so if you're a Christian, then you have been baptized by the Spirit. You have been filled. But then the encouragement from Paul that we see is to continually fill, be filled, continue to be filled by his power and by his presence. And so how do we do that? What does that look like? First is faith. If you've never trusted Christ, then again, we're empty. He's got to fill us with his spirit, and he will. In an instant, he'll fill us. So we trust Christ, and he fills us. But then as Christians, it's continued faith. 
one of the things that blows me away in Mark chapter 6, I believe, um, it says that Jesus was unable to perform miracles in Nazareth. I read that and I'm like, time out, I thought he was God, like couldn't he do whatever he wanted? But it says he's unable to perform miracles because they didn't have faith and believe him. Our faith is directly connected to being in his power and presence and seeing his work in our lives. If we don't have faith, we're going to step outside of his will, we're going to go our own way, and we're not going to see his power and his presence. It starts with faith, with trusting. Yo, that's my biggest thing. I'll pray for something, but do I really think God's going to do it? A lot of times, no. I think I have to do it or trust that the circumstances come together. It starts with faith. How do we stay filled by the Spirit? Next thing is humility. The Lord is actively in opposition to the proud. Pride is contending for God's position. So anytime I am prideful, anytime I'm holding tight to my way, I am not holding tight to His. I cannot be in His presence. I cannot be filled by His Spirit if I'm prideful. It's the lowly that God lifts up. It's the humble that God lifts up. Pride will keep me out of his power and his presence. It will not let me be filled by his spirit. And then walking in righteousness. There just comes a point where we've got to obey his words. We abide in Christ when we commune with him and when we obey his words. I am not abiding in his power and presence if he says go this way and I'm going that way. If he says don't do that and I'm putting it in my life, then I'm, I'm moving myself out. I'm removing the presence of the spirit. Now, I don't believe we can ever lose the spirit, but we can quench and we can grieve the spirit of God in us and we step outside of his power and his presence. We aren't effective witnesses like that. So this is what's happening here. We'll wrap up real quick. The early church is filled with his spirit. They're given everything they need to walk like Jesus and to talk like Jesus, and that's what you see happen. You see that they get the gift of speaking in different languages and different tongues, not because they studied it in the past, but because the Holy Spirit who created all tongues just starts speaking through them. Well, why? So that they can show off that they have these new languages? Like, hey, check me out. I'm super spiritual. Like, I got the Spirit of God in me. I got all these special tongues. No, so that they can speak the mighty works of God. In verse 11, that's what it says, is that the people outside hearing them hear the mighty works of God being spoken in their native tongue. So God gives them this gift, this tongue, so that they can speak of God's works. Not so they can boast in their own specialness, but so they can speak of God's works. And then verse 14, it says, Peter stood up with the 11. He addressed the crowd. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. That's important, right? Because Jesus said, you're gonna be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Samaria comes in chapter eight. The ends of the earth comes in chapter 10. Here in verse two, chapter two, we see it going to Judea. Because there's a crowd that has gathered, and Peter speaks up. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus. That it was our lawlessness, our sin that crucified Jesus. But don't worry, he didn't stay dead. He overcame death and sin and he's alive today so that anybody who places their faith in him, their sins get buried and they're resurrected to a new life with Jesus. And that's the message that Peter communicates And it says in verse 27, they heard this and they were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. So turn away from trusting in yourself. Have faith in Jesus and let's baptize you as a public demonstration of your faith in Christ. And let's go forward as new creations in Christ. And it says on that day, there were about 3,000 souls added to the kingdom that day. That's a revival. 3,000 people heard the gospel by the power of the Spirit, and they trusted Christ. The church went from 120 to 3,000 in one sermon. That's impressive. And that's a demonstration of the power and presence at work through the lives of ordinary men and women. Remember, Peter was running in fear on the night that Jesus was arrested. A teenage slave girl, someone who had no status in their culture, questioned him about Jesus, and he flat out denied knowing Jesus and ran in fear. And now he's standing in front of thousands, proclaiming the name of Jesus, and thousands are turning to trust Christ because Jesus is alive and sent the Spirit to fill Peter, and Peter now is being his witness, and the world is coming to know Jesus. That's what happens when we're filled by the power and presence of Jesus and his Spirit. That's what we're praying for here, in this city, in your families, in the world. Because he's worth it. He's worth it. And he commands our allegiance. May we be filled by the Spirit. May we put away anything that is obstructing his presence and his power. May we lay down our selfishness and our ambitions and in boldness. Speak the name of Jesus. Live the life of Jesus so that all people in all places can know and be a part of his kingdom as well. We have the spirit of God in us. We have everything we need. The question simply is, will we do it? Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.